This week on the Twin Geek Cast, we cover Del Toro's Shape of Water. We get bent out of shape about the Oscars and tag along as we discuss best Girl Scout cookies. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. The natives in the Amazon worshipped him like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. So, I uh, got a box of Girl Scout cookies today. I got the Tagalongs, the all-time best flavor. Yes, I think we're in agreement with that. We're actually not going to talk about any movies today. We're going to rank all of the Girl Scout cookies. Rank and review every Girl Scout cookie. Um, you say do do I say do do not I say yeah. go with the Tagalongs. Absolutely. Samoas are up there as well. Very good cookie. So, Samoas are pretty good. Where would you put them in your ranking? Are they uh, second, third? Probably in like the second range. Definitely not as good as Tagalongs. Tagalongs just got that consistent, creamy, like peanut butter and chocolate. You can't go wrong with that, man. It's perfect. Yeah, it's better than a Reese's cup. It's it a is. lot more fulfilling. It's crispy. It's it's the perfect cookie. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> I think they have uh, s'mores flavors now. They've they've uh, developed some different uh, things. Uh, I think we have a disagreement on the thin mints, which are I think are perfectly fine. Yeah, I th- you know, most people are. I'm just not a mint person, so they they just automatically go out the window there. Like, if ever I go to stay at a hotel and they put a m- mint on my pillow, I have to leave. I can't handle it. <laughs> and I uh, I don't know about shortbreads. Uh, that's not really my thing either. So um... No, yeah. I, like I said, I know like three Girl Scout cookies, man. I, my list is small. They're announcing <laughs> a new one as of this year that's caramel chocolate chip, which sounds fine. So that's all <laughs> That's all we got in the world of uh, Girl Scout cookie news and hot takes. Yep, uh, we'll see you all next week. All right, good show. <laughs> now now we move on to our typical movie discussion, since uh, I guess we got to fill an hour still. Oh, yeah. So that's what the sponsors say, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what the, <laughs> they're, they're lining out the door, our sponsors. They just want us to <laughs> button up and make a compact show, so... Uh, we're going to go right into exciting Academy Awards uh, with number 11 on our box office. Yeah, so I guess it's, that's kind of convenient. I imagine it's going to jump right back up into the box office this following week. Because oh, it, yeah. it won Best Picture and everyone's going to go see it again and be all like, why did this win Best Picture? And <laughs> still be confused when they walk out. Yeah, if you look at the dailies, <laughs> it's already hanging around 7, so we're going to get it back next week. You know, and this is the thing we were talking about. It's like the whole time, Green Book's been running rampant in the box office for the past several weeks. The only Oscar nominee to be running around in our box office, and now it's back again. We can't get rid of it. <laughs> we thought it was going to be Bohemian Rhapsody. We'd never escape, but no, it was Green Book. And um, if you want to look at that, I think that Spider Man and uh, Green Book, especially, have made a 
a real play at the box office for the award season, and they were properly awarded. Uh, last week, we said that it was going to win. We braced you all to do it, so we are your uh, accurate predictors, and um, we have the hot takes on cinema. You know, I gotta say, it was it was kind of a disappointing thing to hear. I didn't watch it happen, obviously, because I didn't want to do that, but... <laughs> Yeah, when I heard that, I'm like, oh, that's underwhelming. And then immediately I saw everyone with the hot takes were like, it's like Crash. It's this decade's Crash. <laughs> it's more like this decade's um, Driving Miss Daisy, but I see what they mean. Well, that was the funny thing, and I remember I remember seeing an article talking about how Spike Lee almost like <laughs> angrily stormed out of the Oscars. And like after thinking about it and ha- having to explain to someone what the whole Greenberg controversy was, I don't blame him because <laughs> not only did he... He have this very personal, you know, uh, racial, you know, kind of study film about, you know, current politics with black Klansmen. And he lost to the, you know, less racially sensitive and kind of aware Green Book, you know, as as everyone has kind of stated. <laughs> Essentially just labeling it as a reverse driving Miss Daisy. But 30 years ago, this year, he uh, made Do the Right Thing, which is very similar, you know, very personal film about race relations, got looked over at the Oscars, and that year lost to Driving Miss Daisy. And we have to look at it, Spike Lee said, um, every time someone's driving someone, I lose. Yeah, and it, it's a terribly kind of like, I can't help but find that funny coincidence, but it's also like, I imagine if Spike Lee, I would be very pissed. Like, how, how do you just get, like, smacked around like that twice, 30 years apart? Like, this is the first time he's been recognized by the Academy in his whole history. Finally, he yeah. gets there, and they're like, nah. And he had a good speech, but I think it's the fact that he lost to this film. I don't think it's the fact that he lost. It's Right, that, right. Um, he's not, it's not, I don't think he's being a sore loser. Being like, I no. should have won. No, it's that he, he lost to this film that is very much not representative of what's going on versus what he's the message he's been preaching for 30 years like this has been spike's mo this whole time this is a film where the white character says to the black guy i'm more black than you are oh do, does he really say that in those words yeah oh oh yeah uh. this is the <laughs> this is the movie with the scene where the white guy introduces him to not only kentucky fried chicken and fried chicken as a concept but also black popular music which I feel like a classical piano player living, you know, like in like luxurious uh, music scene in New York would probably know a little bit about black music. I mean, he's studied and he's a prodigy. Get the fuck out with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And then there was the whole controversy popping up of the, the writer being kind of a racist asshole, you know, in, in his past. Yeah, we look at uh, Mahershala Ali, who is a Muslim, and then we think... Uh, Jesus Christ, you know, this guy's uh, writing against Muslims as, and taking Trump's side against them. So he's the guy who wrote the script, and he won the award. Uh, it's just a messy Oscar season to me. Very, very much. The, the controversy surrounding it is incredibly insane, especially considering how, how much better last year was, not only in the representation of quality, but in, in you know, different filmmakers around. You know, I, I read somewhere that the past five years, I think six now with uh, Quran winning, is that you know, like a, a Mexican director has won the uh, Best Director Award. Yeah, I mean um, we have uh, Birdman and uh, Shape of Water and Quran uh, there's such a good uh, trinity of 
Mexican directors right now. It's really hot right now, so that's yeah. a good thing. And, and so it shows a good representation there, but then you have something like this year. Like, I don't know how we went from last year to this year, which is largely why we decided to pick out Shape of Water to talk <laughs> about this week. Because I, I just keep I th- saying, look at the nominees this year. Like, they're not that good. So I think Academy, you end up getting the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, the different ballots that are uh, the preferential ballots, and you end up with two and three place movies that end up taking the Oscar because they're popular on every ballot. Right, well, because, you, you know, they're the kind of middle-of-the-road movies. They're all going to strike an average score, whereas you got yeah. stuff like Roma or The Favorite, which were, they seem like the top contenders, but they're the, the artsier films that the, you know, the less um, kind of aware or appreciative Academy members aren't going to pick, so they end up at the bottom of their list, you know? I want to say good for them for taking <laughs> Olivia Coleman over Glenn Close and The Wife, because uh, that was going to be a bit tragic, because The Wife is a terrible picture. Glenn Close is good. It's because nobody actually saw it. None of the Academy members watched <laughs> The Wife. You're literally the only person in the world who went and saw that movie. So, I don't even know if the director saw the movie. I don't think so. The editor certainly didn't. <laughs> uh, I think that that was our conversation before. It was that only Academy voters have seen The Wife, but now we have confirmation that even they have not seen The Wife. Yep. So Fantastic. Um, yeah. You want to jump into box office here? Yeah, I think so. I think we Oscars? talked... No, I don't. I don't think there's so much more to say. There's a lot that's already been said about the Oscars. We've said a lot about the Oscars, kind of running up to here. And I think, in general, like like my stance on it, at least, is that we should probably stop talking about the Oscars if we want them to kind of do something. <laughs> and I think that we said last week we're going to have some special coverage on it, but it was pretty uninteresting. So I don't think we will. Well, I think that's what you said because this is the, your first time watching the Oscars, right? I've watched them in like bars and pretty casual settings, and. Yeah, I watched the year Birdman one because I was invested, but uh, this year I saw all the pictures. Uh, this year yeah. I really wanted to dig in, and I was only happy about uh, Olivia Colman's speech. Uh, oh, also, um, Shallow being performed was uh, probably the best moment of the whole show. Mm-hmm. This was, I think, the first year I did not watch the Oscars in a long time. Last year, like I usually have fun and do a thing like we do a, a betting pool we did last year with some friends. And I won because I'm very good at predicting how the Academy is going to make stupid decisions. <laughs> it's pretty easy, right? Like a, it is. You know it's, what, insane. Uh, <laughs> it's insanely easy if you watch the trends and the kind of things they picked. Like, like we'll get to this later as well. But uh, you know, like I even predicted that they were going to pick Shape of Water for best score last year, and when everyone was going for Phantom Thread, of course. Which is, you know, Shape of Water has a great score. I don't want to bring it down, but I think Phantom Thread is one of the best scores. So. Yeah, well, you you and many people claim it's like one of the best ever now, which might, so. which which might be a little like exaggerated, like you know, time will tell on that one. But Mm-mm. certainly, it it would be deserving of it, and probably more than Shape of Water. But Shape of Water is the safe choice, and that's what and the Academy went with. They're always horrible at doing scores because you have such a small pool in the Oscars who know how sound works. I mean, look at what won in sound. I think did did Bohemian Rhapsody win for sound or, editing? Are yeah, they won for me. Yeah, just because they strung together a bunch of Queen songs. Hmm. I mean, Queen's good, but you're just lowering and pitching the levels of Queen songs. It, it's not an amazing sounding movie when you have stuff like First Man, where you're going into space and you like feel yourself like catapulting right. in a spaceship. Come the fuck on. Sound mixing is such a weird one to me because it's I think the most technical of any of the um, 
you know, awards even more than like just you know editing. There's like a more artistic side editing and whatnot. But yeah. like, I don't expect the Academy members to even know how sound mixing works. I can't even claim to know exactly how sound mixing works. But I, I understand it enough to know that Bohemian Rhapsody probably didn't deserve it. I have a pretty good idea of how it works, but I just don't feel like they're all specialized in the field they're voting on. Because if they were, they would not get these results. And we would have gotten under the skin for best score. You know, they're, they're just not uh, they're not in the know about what these things are. Also can compare, like think about how Ship of Water scores is kind of fantasiful kind of thing and very light. Whereas if you look at stuff like Under the Skin and, you know, last year's, or yeah, last year's You Were Never Really Here, that is very, like, you know, imposing and like almost dangerous kind of scores. That's not something the Academy wants to listen to. They want something right. to pop on, you know, and just kind of relax and, they, you know, the nice things. That's why you don't see the, the kind of, you know, great, you know, the, the more uh, dangerous kind of art being recognized that's, that's a shame in it though because they are willing to take dangerous art because the shape of water is dangerous art and i just feel like if you're going to do that then you should also musically find something interesting yeah well i think i think what's what's good about shape of water again we'll get into this we're, we're skipping around here but shape of water is you know in a very del toro kind of way you know artfully kind of dangerous and pushing boundaries art packaged in a safe and marketable manner you know and yeah. that's that's what del toro is really great at but we will get to there let's first <laughs> you know what's not safe is the phantom thread score which sounds like it sounds like death at certain points it sounds like you're getting poisoned it's not a pleasant experience right which is not what the academy wants academy no. wants to be happy like all the other moviegoers out there they're looking yeah. for escapism not art well they got it yeah <laughs> all right well, let's take a look at the box office before we talk into some, you know, cheap water stuff, and we'll, we'll rock around back to the Academy again there. Deal. But, all right. <laughs> at number 10 here, we have Run the Race, which I had to ask you about just before we started here. It's a Tim Tebow-funded documentary, which um, I like sports documentaries, but I'm not is likely it, to go to the theater right now for one. Is it a documentary? I think it is a, a sports documentary. I know it is funded by Tim Tebow. And, I don't think uh, it is. I, IMDb says it's a drama sport film. I don't think it's a documentary. It's the same thing, though. Um, is it? Like a, a sport drama? I'm just going to cut all this. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery. Clear, clearly, we, we care enough to know about these Tim Tebow-funded films that somehow snuck their way into our box office this week. Well, I think the real story is that we saw it was Tim Tebow and we stopped looking. So, yep, it's a 10. It's a brand yeah. new release here, and it'll be gone next week, and we won't have to embarrass ourselves by not knowing about it next week. Yeah, I'm not embarrassed. I feel good about not knowing. I mean, that's like my whole shtick here is that I don't know anything about new releases, <laughs> and I entirely <laughs> depend on you. So, yeah. why am I embarrassed? <laughs> it's true. I'm supposed to not know anything, Calvin. You're the one who's supposed to know what's going on here. How about number nine? Number nine, uh, we can't get rid of this one. It's the upside still. Oh, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> still? I mean, after the weeks we've been talking about it? I just know Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. And uh, I thought the Oscars, by the way, did just fine without Kevin Hart. I thought uh, they don't need a host anymore, so that's nice. Yeah, that's that's probably only one beneficial thing. And the ratings went up because of it, so... Yeah, it went up 12%, still the second worst Oscars after last year, as far as yeah. ratings. Last year's all, all those. Fine. All those headlines are a bit misleading. It's like, oh, we're up from last time. It's like, yeah, 
a little. (laughs) But this one is similar to like the 2008 one where nobody watched because No Country is the only choice. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there was there will be blood was there that year too. That was a tough choice to make. It was just that nobody they weren't popular movies. They weren't Green Book, Bo Rap, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no, nobody went to go see those, and the people who did. Especially with, like, No Country. They walked out, like, sad. They're like, man, the movie sucked. It just ended, and they killed the guy. And it's, like, entirely missing. But but admittedly, I didn't get it at first, too. So. No. I mean, there's not a lot, of, a lot of pomp and circumstance. Lady Gaga's not going to come to the stage and perform the soundtrack to No Country. So, fuck I it. wish. I know. It would be better. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, um, at number eight, we have Cold Pursuit. And speaking of Cohen's, uh, I hear this is a very Cohen-flavored film. We have two write-ups on the site about it that kind of suggests as much. Maybe maybe very Fargo-esque, I imagine. That's where people are drawing parallels. That's what I hear. I haven't Snow. seen the original, uh, what's it called, In the Order of Disappearance or something. Yes, that's what it's called. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I gotta say, um, you know, Laura's review of it was very nice and kind of got the point across, but... I just really loved reading Tyler's experience there because it was very <laughs> funny when he when he first told us about that, like going and seeing, like he was like, "Oh, I'm going to look up a film from this director," and then he went to see Cold Pursuit and slowly realized it was the same film. That's it like was, my dream article for the site. That's what well, I want everyone to be doing. <laughs> when he when he said that, when he told that story, I was like, "Tyler, you have to write this for us. You have to write about this experience because that is hilarious." My favorite part is we both pursued it uh, separately and said the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew it had to be done. It, well, that was the thing is that like I, I messaged him and he's like, "Yeah, I, I already talked to Calvin about it." But like we were on the same page. <laughs> That's how you know we're doing a good thing. We're, we're in each other's minds now. <laughs> That's right. All right, so number seven here we have a uh, happy death day to you, which mm. you've been. You know, I happily expect, celebrating. <laughs> I expect this to be the last week it's in, to be honest. So, um, I don't know if you noticed that I snuck in the the uh, phone song in the last podcast. Uh, I didn't because I don't actually care about our podcast and don't listen oh. to them afterwards. <laughs> I care a lot about them, but I, I I'm, I'm glad one of us has to. Yeah, I should. I should um, care. <laughs> it's full of references. I have the review on the site. I I love Happy Death Day, and I'm excited that we're getting a trilogy out of it because we don't get horror trilogies that are fun anymore like we get the really uh gritty like annabelle's and uh what is it called in insipid insidious well, that's, uh, that's even more than a trilogy i think there's a, a certainly a, di- a difference between a series and a trilogy you know what is like a horror trilogy that you can think of that's really like solid i can't think of any really was scream a trilogy no scream had like four films i think Horror, well, and they still had they still had like um, diminishing there's... returns, um, you know. And you think about it, like there's six or seven alien films now. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't even. I mean, Aliens not really a good trilogy either because they're so different. Um, right, um, I mean, but I mean, at least you got like those first two, which are masterpieces. Like they kind of make up for it. But even then, again, it's it, they go, go on. And that's the trouble with these horror series that they don't ever stop. You know, I mean, they'll stop at three. We do have, like, the classics, like, Evil Dead is, of course, probably... Evil the Dead, there you go. Trilogy, that's that's we, the only one I can think while. of. <laughs> it took us a while, but we pulled the right reference. Um, there there you go, because there is three. It's three Evil Dead films, and they and stopped. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. A remake. Um, or I Spit on Your Grave, that probably has three. Um, 
Jesus Christ, where are we going? But uh, Back to the Future is a huge reference, and it kind of plugs into that trilogy format, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, it's only a horror movie for about 30 minutes this time, but mm-hmm. after that it's a Back to the Future movie, which is just as good for me. Yeah, it's an interesting take, certainly a creative choice, and it seems like they're just having fun with the series, which is more than some horror franchises can say. Yeah, I'm not having fun with... Uh, I'm not having fun with any other real horror franchises I could think of right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wonder if they're going to get we're going to get a Quiet Place trilogy. I know they're working on a sequel. Oh yeah, I think that's happening. We're at least getting the two, right? So. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to go. That'll be odd. I think. Be great. Hopefully. All right, I'm very interested to hear about this next one because you talked briefly about this a little bit. Number six here, we have what men want. So I was coming out of the cinema for a drink refill and. A lady was being escorted out of the film because she passed out from laughing too much. Which seems hilarious to me when you mentioned it, especially considering, like, the reception of the film and the ratings I've seen. Like, this, <laughs> just, does, this does not seem like the, the comedy masterpiece of the century. I did a double take on the uh, the screen of the cinema she was leaving, <laughs> and it, it definitely said um, what men want, which I was very surprised by. Um and I watched her friend impersonating her passing out. She was uh, laughing a little bit, then she looked like she was gagging on popcorn, and then she kind of fell to the floor, which I thought was amusing. But that that helped me buy into their story, because I didn't believe it otherwise. Right. I mean, it's it's a ridiculous thing to kind of claim. It's a certainly kind of over-the-top thing. They laugh so hard, that so they passed out. And <laughs> and when you said what movie it was, I'm like, you'll have to forgive me if I don't believe you on that. Like, that doesn't seem like the movie you would pass out laughing to they, maybe they had a pre-existing condition that's that's they, the only way i believe this story they might do this at all movies <laughs> they just go in and they stunt. you know what it is that's where it is it's a conspiracy it's a pr stunt from the studio they're sending in people to you know make make fake stunts to make it seem even more hilarious than it is because now they have people like you and me interested to see what the film is so funny about um, you're welcome for the podcast coverage uh, pr team um <laughs> And you could uh, get in touch and tell us why you've pulled this stunt. Please, please consider sponsoring. Yeah, that too. <laughs> we'll keep telling your story if you want to. <laughs> All right, more romantic comedies right up your alley here. Number five, isn't it romantic? Um, hell yeah, Rebel Wilson, right? Right, right, right. Um, right? <laughs> so uh, this is... Sounds interesting to me. I guess I, I guess I want to go to it. it uh, this lady gets like a concussion, wakes up, and she's in a romantic comedy. She doesn't really like romantic comedies. So that should it's, be fun, but it probably is one. Or it sounds it? like it sounds like the Deadpool of romantic comedies. <laughs> it does sound that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, there was that uh, little bit that I was uh, that I sent you that um, summary. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was just so convoluted like i couldn't even understand what was going on from new line cinema comes the romantic comedy isn't it romantic starring rebel wilson how to be single pitch perfect films liam hemsworth hunger games films adam divine the intern pitch perfect and prayanaka chopra quantico and baywatch under the direction of todd strauss Scholson, a very homer a very herald and kumar 3d christmas and the final girls. Um, I feel like that's the highlight of their whole blurb, is that uh, this guy directed Harold and Kumar. No, oh, oh, shit, sorry, I, f- I fell asleep there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I hopefully we didn't lose most of the audience, too. 
that you've seen um, Harold and Kumar, right? Yes, yeah, I mentioned that. Uh, I like the Harold and Kumar series, strangely enough. Um, I remember going and seeing the the last one in theaters for Christmas. It was one of the last 3D experiences I enjoyed. Um, they, they throw eggs yeah, right I at your face. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go see it. I just, uh, I don't know. I don't really know. Nah, I, I know, but it's like romantic comedy. That's like your thing, man. I know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll do it. I have a lot coming up this week. I have a festival starting tomorrow, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah, that'll, that'll be some interesting coverage as well. Probably more interesting than this thing. I think so. <clears throat> All right, at number four here, we have uh, fighting with my family, which I also went to early screening of. It's pretty good. It has um, it's about the wrestler Paige, who you might know from WWE, but you definitely know from her porn scandal. So. Um, that's an interesting character for them to launch a, one of their first successful films just about wrestling. Right. Um, the Rock's and it's got good. It's a Rock uh, producer on it, and he's in it, right? Yeah, I think he's good. It's fun. Um, Florence, what do you say? How do you say it? Pew? Pow? Pew. I, don't, I don't know. Do I look like I'm good at pronouncing things? Yeah. I'm the one who messed up Lumet. Um, yeah, Florence Pew is pretty good. I... I think it's funny and decent, and it's nice to start getting good wrestling pictures. So. Yeah, you had, a, you had a review for it a while ago back on the site because you got an early screening. Yeah, I'm trying to remember everything about it. Uh, it's been a long time so since you've seen it, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is that it's it's really jumped up in the box office this week. Finally hit wide release, and it it got pretty far up there, and that's nice. You know, higher than some of this other weird stuff. It's pretty. It's pretty novel for them to bring Stephen Merchant in to direct one of these things because it doesn't seem like his kind of thing. But apparently, he's a fan. So. Yeah, I don't know. The trailers weren't like my kind of thing. I think certainly it seemed kind of overindulgent, you know, with all the rock stuff. But I imagine for that's sure. always that's kind of the thing to bring the audience in, you know, and watch their their more sentimental, you know, character story. Well, she was exposed for having the sex tapes, right? So there's a weird scene where. Um, the Rock calls uh, Vince Vaughn's character sex tape, and I was like, "This is a really awkward uh, way to acknowledge what's going on here." Yeah, it's it's certainly maybe a bit tasteless. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine in the movie. I don't know. I probably won't go see it because I don't go no. see anything. Don't go see it. I, I mean, I don't go see anything. I mean, if you're into wrestling. Yeah, I'm, but I'm not into wrestling. Yeah, what, no, what, what, don't go see it. Okay, I won't. It took a lot of convincing, but I will not go see it. At number three here, we have uh, the Lego Movie Part Two, the second part, uh, which is the second part of the original Lego Movie, as the title dictates. Right, and you have a review of that too. Oh yeah, that's yeah. true. I saw that one too, and uh, I should you have be review for like it. most things. Yeah, yeah, I guess I have review for about half of this, and it was good. And um, I don't have much more to say. There's a great Beck song that we haven't talked about at the end credits, so um, go for the end. I feel like that's all Beck does anymore, is he makes songs for movies. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty dope. Uh, for yeah. a Scientologist, he's a good guy. There's actually a lot of good ones, surprisingly. <laughs> good Scientologists or good Beck songs? Yes. <laughs> I think there's at least a lot of good Scientologists. Maybe those are just the ones they're pushing, and they're hiding all the other ones in the, the kind of cracks of the house, you know? It's true. They really want them to have big careers that make it look like Scientology is a big deal. So I'm sure they, I'm sure they push those guys. But, but he kind of was born into it, so it's not his fault. Yeah. Well, hopefully, 
you'll get out of it eventually. We know how mm-hmm. awful that is. I don't know how our discussion of Lego Movie 2 turned into Scientology, but... Yeah, Beck. It... Yes. <laughs> anyway, review on that one as well. I think that would be probably the best way to get information on it, since you seem to not remember anything now. No, I remember it. It was fine. Uh, I just don't... I don't have much more to say. We've been on it a few weeks. Yeah, we have, and we'll probably be on it for a few more weeks because it's True. an animated movie and it'll stay around. <clears throat> All right, uh, number two here, we have Alita, Battle Angel. Is it making any more this week? Yeah, 12, not, 12 million. Not, a, not enough to even come close to what it needs. Yeah, no, it's like down more than 50%. Ugh. I really yeah. like the 3D in this one. Um, I like the make-believe sport. They have more than like the sports of like Harry Potter or something. So, uh, it's hard for me to buy into those fake sports. Yeah, well, there's a lot of interesting ones, especially in the kind of sci-fi ones. You know, kind of like Alita. I'm trying to yeah. think of like a, a good one off the top of my head, and I can't. I guess Running Man. Uh, Running Man comes ahead yeah, to my mind. Yeah. Sure. I I mean Alita's good. Uh, it doesn't quite get to what it sets up because the whole thing is about the people that live in the sky right and she's always looking up to this place she was born into and you know she has like the cybernetic parts and she was a defender for the city and she's brought in by christoph waltz who's this doctor who finds her parts and gives her the heart of a teenage girl and the mind of a teenage girl so uh, she acts like one but she really is a long lost ninja so it doesn't really have like the born sexy yesterday thing but it's it's kind of verging on that territory. Mm-hmm. Is it... Uh, can, I, can I ask about that? So, did he, like, harvest this heart and mind from a teenager? Um, her heart is actually, like, filled with the power of the city. It's, like, a very special cybernetic part. And then uh, his daughter... His daughter died, and so he kind of reprogrammed her to fulfill the place of his his daughter. Oh, okay, I see. That's, that's a little weird, but... Mm-hmm. Understandable. Yeah, it's okay. It, I, I like it. I like Alita. I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm hearing enjoyable things about it. It's not bad, but no way it's going to make his money back, and that's a shame. Yeah, I can't wait to see it again on video. Um, I think you should go see it in 3D if you're going to. Otherwise, wait. Yeah. So, hopefully that'll be good. Again, check out Calvin's review for a little bit more information there. And then uh, you'll have a review for this next one, I think, after the weekend here, right? Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, this one's also going to hang around the box office, I imagine, for a while. Because, you know, those animated films. Yeah, uh, this one's come in higher than the last three. You want to introduce it? Yeah, this is uh, the third How to Train Your Dragon film, The Hidden World. This is like DreamWorks' flagship property now that Shrek has died. Yeah, you're right. And talking about trilogies, they... uh, Realized from Shrek that you could build a big trilogy just around a few okay characters. So uh, that's what this is. And this one has come in a lot higher than the previous two, which is our uh, first, like, true success story of the year, I think. Mm-hmm. As far as a uh, box office goes, yeah, this right. one's making it back a bit more. Oh, it's got a $55 million debut. Which is good. <laughs> yeah. How, uh, do we know what the budget is on this? Because usually animated budgets are... Especially for something like this, I imagine it's pretty big. I don't, but uh, it does have a lot of big-name actors, so you'd figure that uh, it would be pretty up there. And this one has some really cool effects in it. You're not kidding. There are, bi- there are a lot of big-name actors in here. <laughs> there are. F. Murray Abraham in here. What is he yeah. doing? Well, he's the uh, main nemesis in this one, and he's very interesting in it. So uh, that's fun. Um, mm-hmm. 
And there, there are scenes where the dragons are, like, soaring into the sky, and it's doing this ethereal art project stuff where I was just kind of blown away for a minute. I was like, am I still in this, or are they just wanting to make an art project? And that's why they're making such a definitive ending. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. I see there's a picture here with Hiccup wearing a beard. <laughs> yeah. And that's weird to me with someone who, like, only watched the first film. Is he wearing a beard, or is it his friend? His friend always has a fake beard on. Oh, it looks like it's him. Okay. Uh, I don't... Not not, not like a uh, fake beard. When I say wearing, I mean like he has a beard. It doesn't look like it's supposed to be fake. Because his friend, there's a a gag where his friend has a fake beard. He's like, let me rub you against my manly beard. But it's just a fake one hanging off his chin. But yeah, at the end of the movie, he gets a beard too. That makes sense, because he's kind of fulfilling the role of his father, it sounds like. Uh, budget, we got $129 million, which will be easy to make up at this rate, I think. Hopefully, as long as it stays like this. 55 isn't quite half of that, you know, but yeah. it should it should be able to recover that, especially with how long I imagine it'll stay in the box office. Oh, man, and when you put these in a triple pack, it's going to make it back on video, so it'll yeah, be Yeah, right. certainly. Uh, I guess I should say it ends, it ends pretty sweetly. Um, I mean, I felt like it was only adults in the theater, which is always weird, but uh, we all look pretty happy about it. That is kind of weird, actually. It's only adults, but it does <laughs> seem like a more mature kind of uh, emotionally, you know, complex um, children's film. Well, I've unlocked the secret that you just go to the Dolby screenings, and then you get the nice chair, and there aren't children, which is always good if you have children to take a break. Well, that makes sense as well. Parents aren't going to want to pay for super expensive tickets. They <laughs> right. they already got to bring their kid to this dumb animated movie, right? Yeah. I don't think it's amazing. I I think I always thought it was funny the character's name is Toothless because that's what I think of the franchise. <laughs> that is not very, you know, ferocious or anything. Yeah, it just it doesn't have any bite. Uh I always consider it like screensaver movie like uh, as a parent you want that kind of thing where you can kind of walk away, but also, you won't miss any beats, and your kid will stay engaged, because there's not much to it. I'll say this, at least it's not Frozen, right? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> we'll never get rid of that song. The sequel coming, too. Oh, God. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think that's about it we have for the box office. Do we have any streaming things to talk about this week? Absolutely. I think we got a bunch, but I think we could pare it down to two, if you'd like. Sure, go ahead. Now, if you're playing the movie on a telephone you will never in a trillion years experience the film you'll think you have experienced it but you'll be cheated it's a such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone get real uh, we so got? we have Stalker, which is the Tarkovsky that came onto Criterion Channel, my first Tarkovsky, and uh, and we realized nobody on the side is really an expert other than Graham. Grant, Graham's about the only thing, and he asked if I was going to see it. You know, I'm, I'm usually pretty good about getting around to those older films, but I don't know, I'm not ready for Russian cinema yet so much, man. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a bigger thing to tackle, and I should. I, sh- I should have seen stuff like Battleship Potemkin already, because that's like a huge yeah. one you're supposed to watch, but... I didn't yet, and I, um, ho- hopefully nobody finds out. Yeah, hopefully we haven't broadcasted it out to the world on a public podcast. Yeah, just between you and me, man. Don't let anyone know. Okay, nobody listens anyway. Uh, we have a, <laughs> it's like a, 
a waterlogged Eastern block, which I found really interesting. It does some cool things with sound, and I mean, you've probably seen like screenshots of like the lumpy sand and the weird like drowned out color palettes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I've always heard fantastic, amazing things about Stalker and you know all Tarkovsky films. People talk about the Mirror a lot too. It's a huge, you know, beautiful one of the greatest films and all that. But no, this you know bringing it to the channel here is really nice. I like seeing the variety that the Criterion Criterion channel providing just in these few, you know, weeks before we get, uh, you know, like months or so, I guess, uh, before the channel, like, officially launches with everything. It's interesting because, you know, now they have, what, uh, To Sleep With Anger this week. Yeah. Which is their brand new... Yeah. Brand new release, and they did that when they launched with, um, you know, Mikey and Nikki as well. And then in the meantime, we also got Chunking Express somewhere along the way, which is nice for people who didn't get to see that yet you know and same thing kind of like now with stalker and you really enjoyed yeah. it you seem like um i mean stalker i haven't seen any tarkovsky before it so it's just like i don't know exactly what to expect but right. i think that it was a lot uh it's heavy as people say it is right mm-hmm. um i don't know uh, how far we want to go since it's just the one side but i really love the audio design i feel like i'm submerged underwater and the way that he shoots, like he's, I think a pretty good topic for today too with Shape of Water, is that he's kind of like, you're gliding along the water and you feel that you're almost drowning in something. And I guess that the shooting of the movie was a big reason that led to his development of the cancer, because uh, it sounded like it was a pretty toxic, hard to make film. Mm, that's rough to hear, but, yeah, you know, sacrifices for your art and all that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard to think about, like, we don't really respect the artist. We say, you know, once an artist makes something, we say we have to separate them. It's not even their work. So a lot of artists kill themselves for uh, recognition that they're never going to get. So it's interesting. We said there was uh, two this week. What was the other one? Uh, the other one is Paddleton, uh, not Paddington. <laughs> That's on that, Netflix. This, this, I was really hoping that it was another Paddington. Me too, honestly. Every time I saw Padding, Paddleton, I <laughs> thought... Uh, I thought that would be a nice thing, especially this week with with the uh, with Shape of Water. We could get into some Paddington talk, but uh, there's um, it's Mark Duplass and Ray Romano in a pretty good buddy comedy that's not very funny, and it is uh, it's also about death and uh, loss of friendships. So that's a hard one, but uh, it's okay. It's on Netflix. Yeah, well, Netflix seems to be getting a lot of stuff lately. They're turning out more movies than anyone. Yeah. I think that's good for this time of year. I think we're going to start seeing January, February, our Netflix months, that uh, all the studio projects that get dropped will be taken by Netflix for these months. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think now is a good time to move on. We've been talking a lot about Oscars and other stuff up until now, and people probably want to know what the hell is going on with Shape of Water. Yeah. I move my mouth like him. I make no sound like him. What does that make me? All that I am, all that I've ever been, brought me here to him. See, you're saying him. It's a him now. It's a... You just hit me. Eliza, let go of me. I'm looking, I'm looking. You've never hit me. When he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he does not know... What I lack, or how I am incomplete. 
Shape of Water, which is the <laughs> fish out of water story about a woman and her romance with a fish. Yeah. A very explicitly sexual romance. Yeah. That, that I think, is the biggest thing people take away from this. In the opening minutes, we get a nice, you know, moment where we see a fully nude Sally Hawkins masturbating in the bathtub. <laughs> which is funny because uh, I love that when Del Toro went on to interviews, he was like, that's just a perfectly natural routine. Uh, it, it is. And, and that's the thing is that it took, it, you know, it still takes me by surprise. And I, and I remember even just watching it, I just watched it this morning, you know, and it kind of put me off a little bit. I'm like, oh, I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be reacting that way because it is normal. Yeah. Probably wouldn't have that reaction if he was a dude. I don't well, know. I think the way that women are always framed romantically is that it's always hot and alarming and sexual, but really, maybe the reality is they just want it, you know. It's, it's very brazen. And, you know, I noticed especially this time is that there's a specific emphasis on the, the watery sound of it. Like, <laughs> yeah. the wet noises that are made. It's it's very brazen and awkward. But, it, but it's true. It's a true yeah. thing. There's something very <clears throat> sterile about the way she's just uh, boiling the eggs, and then, you know, the eggs are, you know, emblematic of the relationship and the fish, yeah. and, uh, of course, ovaries and whatnot. It's, it's all a thing. There's a lot of, uh, you know, visual symbolism and visual storytelling here. I love the color palettes in the film, especially. You know, it's all very intentional and very well done uh, in that regard. And, you know, so th and that's one of the great things about Del Toro is that he has a very great mind for that kind of thing. Yeah, um, he is one of the masters of it, and I think that he's always loved making love stories about monsters, and this is, I think, his best one of those. As far as love stories go, I think people, like, I think the general consensus is that this isn't quite Pan's Labyrinth level of, you know, brilliance, uh -huh. but it's probably second place among Del Toro's filmography, really. Yeah, he has he has such a great filmography, but I think I'd place it second as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm I'm in that camp. I'm I'm very close. I've got like maybe minor nitpicks with Pan's Labyrinth, but it's a painstakingly beautiful and you know kind of epic kind of film. I think Pan's Labyrinth is probably top ten of the century. I don't know if this is quite there. It's just outside my list. I'd say. Right, I, I and I certainly agree with that sentiment. Um, you know, the only things I can really poke holes in cheap water about is that it's just it's it's very not subtle <laughs> as pointed out by the introductionary masturbation scene <laughs> and it, it's weird how phallic the uh, shoe brush is too that, that yeah. always stands out and, and, they, and they show that it, i think it's only like the two instances where they show the masturbation we're gonna stay on this for a while guys yeah. so that's going but to be yeah. the whole topic <laughs> It's just like there's there's the beginning bit and you see her morning montage and she's doing that and boiling the eggs and then like the next day you see it as well in a quicker montage, with still with the how very, about, you know, solid sound effects of it. It's still there. How about Sally Hawkins? She's really good in it. I mean, yes, um, her, we she had a big a, blowout yep. discussion about whether they should have chosen a deaf actor the other night, but I think that she's the right choice. I think so too, but I, I did read a little bit and see that, you know. Uh, one of the things we talked about on the last night is that, you know, these kind of roles should be at least given opportunity to, you know, more opportunities if you're, like, uh, you know, auditioning and whatnot. And it does not seem that was the case with Shape of Water. It seems like Del Toro wrote the part for Sally Hawkins in particular, which I think is fine as well, his choices in auteur filmmaker. But, yeah, certainly, you know, more opportunities for deaf women in 
deaf people in general would be great. But Sally Hawkins is wonderful here, and the fact that she's not deaf does not take away from that performance. It's very impressive, you know, to pull all of that off and give an emotional performance without speaking at all. And, I mean, we we focus on her deafness, but the, the fish also doesn't talk. Yep, and uh, I think in general, like, as you point out with, uh, you know, other things in the past, silent characters, like you did in our Great Silence podcast, like the idea of her being silent is kind of overarching message about women in the, the 50s and 60s as well, you know, and how they were very, you know, repressed. Well, there are, there are bits, like, when she goes into the old musical, and it would be weird with the deaf character, because she's singing. And Yeah, oh, you can't be... have that scene, then, really. <laughs> right. That that beautiful, great moment where everything, the lights come down, you know, it turns black and white, and it turns into a Fred Astaire number with a fish man. It's so when good. I, when I walked out of that, and I, I could say, this was in a movie, and that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same way about a lot of this. There's... Uh, there's certain moments in this where I just thought this is this is one of the coolest things I've seen in cinema this century. If I could describe Shape of Water in one word, it would be magical, and that's yeah. what it feels like. Because it is, it's it's the perfect thing that Del Toro does is that it's very fairy tale like, and you feel that from the beginning. And I think that's what what the score really helps achieve as well. Is it gives it this kind of fanciful, whimsy kind of to it, you know. Yeah, I mean, Del Toro says that he wants to leave you with the hum, not like a particular song of the movie, but just with the movie humming in your head. And I think that's why I said leaving the theater, I'm like, this is why I go to the movie, this is cinema magic. Yep, I went and saw this movie twice in theaters uh, when it was around. I saw it once, the first time I saw it, it was at, um, and I guess I have a special connection with that way as well, because I saw it the uh, first time, is the first time I went to the Hollywood Theater, which is a very fancy theater, I go see all the old special screenings of things now that I get a break about on here. Yeah, we'll have to go to that someday. It'd be, yes, I'll it'd be definitely cool take it there. It was especially kind of nice because it's a, it a big, grand theater, very much like the one that they live above in the film. So watching it in that space, you know, it, it gave me a lot of that same feeling. And I, I'm like, I feel like I'm watching myself whenever those, those uh, scenes come along. And that was the great thing about... <laughs> last year is that we got these movies that were celebrations of cinema which we don't have any of in the current um oscar running uh i was just saying that how magical it was for me it was a hair-raising moment because you do feel like entrenched in the film you feel like you're you know uh, i mean i don't want to say it's gonna make you wet but it's going to uh, immerse <laughs> you in something that uh that feels real and genuine to your experience of the film within mm -hmm. your context I was thinking about that, and that's another scene where uh, things happen that don't not only make logical sense there, uh, yeah. with how fast the room fills up with water. That's not really realistic, but it, it adds kind of to the fantasy of it. You know, it's, a, it's another magical property of the film, where all these kind of things happen. Like, like his buddy Caron, he's making a kind of magical realism, but his is a little bit less real. Certainly, and that's, you know, Del Toro's whole you know thing, that's his M.O., he does, you know, fanciful things in in a and, very kind um, of real setting. Still, <laughs> I mean, it's it's real, but also it it has those references to our culture where you think, oh, like these are uh, this movie looks like the Red mm -hmm. Shoe. It it looks like an old uh, an old film, and it's in love with the form. You you can right. feel that. Well, they make a lot of callbacks to old films. Like the obvious one is, of course, the the creature looks very much like the creature of the Black Lagoon. And it's it's a kind of reverse love story in that sense. Instead of kidnapping her, she 
kidnaps him. <laughs> I haven't thought of it that way, but uh, it is interesting because it it turns the heist on its head. It's um, in this film, the white guy is the enemy, and the uh, other characters are the characters who are other. They're right. the protagonists. Well, and it's kind of important to point that out. And the film again, this is where where I talk about how the film is not subtle at all in its messages about this. You know, the bad guy, Michael Shannon, very wonderfully, you know, played by him. You know, he's the ideal, you know, blue-collar kind of guy. You know, he's got the whole family mm-hmm. thing figured out. It's a very 60s aesthetic and all that. And he and, and they make his racism so blatant and apparent. Like, the, the scene where he first, like, kind of encountering, and he's talking with Octavia Spence's character, and she's like, oh, you know, so you yeah, got no siblings. That's that's weird for your kind, you know. Yeah. And he says that. Oh, and, and and then he's talking one moment. I remember this one. I kind of rolled my eyes at this. And he's talking about the, the fish guy. And he said, you know, we're created in the Lord's image. You know, you think that's what he looks like? No, the Lord looks like me. And maybe right. sort of like you. But more like me, probably. And that's like exactly what he <laughs> says. And it's like, ah, oh, I get it. He thinks he's God. Right. And then the, the actual God's just a fish man. Yeah, and then they, they flip it around at the end, and he's like, oh, shit, fuck, you are a guy. Right. <laughs> and it it's just, a... it's super obvious dialogue. It is cool, because, uh, well, he relies on the fish, right? He needs him. He needs it to heal his hand and to heal his heart in some way, because uh, he is so cold. But it, the fish is just interested in, uh, what's her name, Elisa? Is that her uh, name? Eliza. Eliza, Eliza is what they say. Eliza, and she, because she gives him the eggs. Yeah. That she makes it, before she masturbates. Yes, and and then she gives her own eggs, I guess, in some metaphorical sense as well and there. she gives them the eggs. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and, of course, we talked about briefly how Eliza's character is also minority, you know, and the fact that she's a disabled character. Again, the Zelda's character, you know, she's a black woman. But the one character, I think, the, the one who is not very like kind of blatantly and painted in broad strokes is Richard Jenkins character. Yeah. His character is handled very well, I think. He's my favorite character in performance in the film. And um of course his most notable uh role is uh Step Brothers as the doctor. Mhm. He's done lots of interesting. I think I recognized him first as one of the the operators in Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Yeah. That's where he gets cool characters. I feel like uh, Cabin in the Woods is a good draw for this one too. I feel like it has similarities in its world building in some way. Yeah, in some ways. But I really like Richard Jenkins' character here because he doesn't handle his homosexual character with, you know, big generalizations and kind of trope things. He's he's very subtle in his performance and his things. Like, I think it was only on this viewing that I caught that the person he's going to to try and work and get his job from was an old lover. Yeah. And, um... I love uh, I love his interaction with the with the guy behind the counter at the pastry shop too. That uh, that's that's a really beautiful other moment from mm-hmm. from last year. That's kind of uh, I don't know. That's kind of what you want to win Oscars, right? Like this, uh, uh, you know, minorities fighting for minorities. We have this, you know, Spanish director who's put this gay character who's speaking out for black women. So women can marry fish. That's really what we want in cinema. <laughs> that's our next big step. That that diner scene, I remember that's another moment where I felt like the uh, the film was kind of like rushing through things. Like, because there's it's a, it's a very quick sequence of events to change Richard Nickens' character's mind is to help 
you know, Eliza. Yeah. And it's like, like so the scene like ends with, no, I can't help you, I gotta do this. Then he goes, and he gets rejected at his job, and then immediately they cut to him at the diner, and he gets, and he tries to make his move, and he gets put off. And then immediately after that, a black couple walks in, and the, the, the waiter is blatantly racist and awful to them out of nowhere that we've seen in the film before. And it's just this, like, triple, you know, slam of bad things to change Richard, Richard Jenkins' mind. It's not paced out at all. Man, he just wants his pie, too. Yeah, it's just this gross green pie. He has, like, a, a shit ton of <laughs> stuff in his fridge. What even is that pie? I don't well, know. <laughs> I think it's, like, a key lime or something, but I think he really just wants to go see the guy, right? Like, he's yeah. interested in the guy, but then he overcomes that. That's what they say. It's a key lime pie. A key lime is kind of like a, you know, it's more of a creamy kind of pie. It's not like a gelatin, like that looks like, you know. <laughs> I don't Maybe, know. That is not uh, yeah. the kind of key lime pie I would eat. And they, and they think it's gross, too. They don't eat it. <laughs> it's like an alternate universe key lime. I mean, he doesn't really want the pie. It's not about the pie. I guess that's something we should talk about as well, is that there's a lot of green in the movie. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the color schemes are very well kind of conveyed in the movie. There's a lot of green everywhere. There's a nice moment, like, after <clears throat> Eliza and the fish man get together for the first time, and she starts wearing red to symbolize her love. Yeah. That's when she gets the, the shoes as well. Red in the film, like the red shoes, it, it symbolizes yep. love and cinema. And... and and she's got a whole red outfit by the end and whatnot to show that. Uh, Michael Shannon's house is is painted in bright yellows throughout the whole time. <laughs> and he talks about his Cadillac uh, being green, of course. That's a, that's a, it's a teal color. or green. Yeah, yeah that's another thing. His candy is green. Right. That's another thing. Water's green. Yeah, water's kind of a greenish color and all that going on. There's lots of green in the movie to represent kind of the, the fish man and all that. I think that's what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. Um, there There is a lot of stylistic touches of the 50s, too, so it kind of feels like you're bringing back a sort of a false technicolor look where, where you know, colors are placed in to uh, enhance meaning of things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's actually supposed to be closer to the 60s, if anything, because that's where the whole Russian plot comes into play, you know, which yeah. is a big element of all that, where they're trying. And, and that's one thing I really like about the film as well, is that there's a logical reason for why the the government would want the fish man. Right. And they bring in the whole space race idea, and that it, it could be a way of helping to learn to breathe in space. Like, it's not like an immediate, like, I see what they would do, but I see why they'd be interested. You know, it's a it's a prospect there. It yeah. makes sense. Why well, they'd want to study it anyway. It's less Creature of the Black Lagoon and more uh, uh, everything has a reason to exist anyway. Right. That that way the creature feels less, less like a MacGuffin and more like an actual purpose to the story and the characters who are interested in him. Like, it's believable. He's not there just because, what is this thing? Let's look at it. Like you, know. you say, everything is blatant. I mean, they it's it's like a cartoon the way it's set up. Uh, they treat him so badly. You there's never any question who's right or who's wrong. Like there's no nuance in that. I guess the the only nuance comes in the the Russian character who is you know torn between doing his duty as an office you know as a as an, a spy, but also you know his love for science and wanting to you know, actually explore what this, you know, weird creature is. Right. There, There's more of a, you know, a balance of that there, and then he helps out Eliza and then get the, the fish guy out. Yeah. Um, 
I really like the the fish in the in the film, and it is a good design, and uh, comes from one of his characters, right? Uh, from Del Toro. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's inspired a lot by, but a lot of people make very you know quick draws between the fish man and um, the other character that Doug Jones played, uh, Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, who's another fish right. man. Um, yeah, you don't often get to play two fishmen for one uh, for one director. So that's I'm I'm starting to wonder if that's just a lifestyle choice for <laughs> Doug Jones and Del Toro wrote the film around that. Yeah, <laughs> you think that's a that he's been um, that's his he's pigeonholed now. He has to yeah. play a fish. Fishman in everything. We're just gonna have an influx of fishmen movies starring <laughs> Doug Jones. I mean, I hope so. But I want a fish boy western now. That's what I want. I would be worried if we got another one of these. I feel like it's complete, and I, I don't want to see more of it. Yeah, no, that would be odd. I mean, and we already got it. You know, everything we wanted with it is a complete story from start to finish. You know, and they have the happy ending, and it's a perfect fairy tale. And it, and I like how it encompasses all of the, the racial politics and, you know, of the, the time in the 60s that are unfortunately still very relevant today. You know, and it makes sense to have all of that there, and it's a very progressive film in that manner. But you don't like like what sequel would you even have Fishman to Electric Boogaloo? Yeah, I mean that's the one. But uh, I feel like politically it does make sense, like women at work and you know suffrage movements, uh, women voting, that kind of stuff is all in there. Mm-hmm. And, and then again, like I said, it relates back to a lot of the oppression that's still going on today. I think that's why it's a very powerful film and why it reached out to many people. And again, I, and it makes sense as to why this was the chosen winner of Best Picture that year. Because again, it's all about all that empowering stuff, but there's no mistaking it because it's so brazen and in your face with it. And I guess we, we never got a Del Toro win before, so he was very due this time. He won, he won for Best Director, I believe, for Pan's Labyrinth, or Best Writing, one of those two. But, you know, otherwise, Pan's Labyrinth didn't get all of the recognition that it really deserved, so this was really... The fa- oh, no, my bad. It was only nominated. So it was only nominated yeah. for Best Screenplay. So this was, yeah, the... He got two Oscars. He got the Best Director and Best Picture Oscar for it. I mean, just just thinking about last year, you had Phantom Thread, Call Me By Your Name, you had Dunkirk, Get Out. You had some real stiff competition coming in. Yeah, and then there's there's also stuff like Three Billboards, which I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. I, I don't mean to sound like I hate it. It's like a, a bland Coen's movie, so it's fine. I mean, I didn't think it was bland, but I get that. It's It has not stayed in my mind as affectionately as others did. I remember one sequence in particular. You know, Sam Rockwell, I think, really deserved the Oscar he won, but the, the one take where he goes from across the street to the office up and throws the guy out the window, that was a pretty great scene. <laughs> it is it. I, guess I remember that, that. stuck with me. Maybe it's a maybe very we'll impressive moment in some way, if not for podcast something. I think it'd be fun because j- just for the sheer joy of watching Francis McDormand kick people in the crotch again—that's yeah, worth a revisit. I guess that's the Cohenness, other than the story of that too. Um, I think that's the big reason why people might associate it with being Cohen because it's Francis McDormand. McDormand. Yeah, like that's She's that's so really it. She is. She's great, and she deserved that Oscar win as well. That's it's like the like... opposite of her Fargo kind of role. You got, <laughs> you got polarizing ends there. I uh, just love the idea that she's, you know, repainting the signs and uh, calling people out. I, I thought it. I, when we saw the trailers for this movie, everyone thought it was winning the Oscar, but 
then we ended up seeing Phantom Thread, and it was pretty obvious that this wasn't on that caliber. Mm-hmm. Well, I still remember, I remember it was like my most liked trailer of that year. I was super hyped for Three Billboards, and I thoroughly oh. enjoyed it when I saw it. I think it definitely had that year's best trailer. I mean, what would you say? This year has to be Star is Born. Yeah, uh, I think so. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think if there's anything comparable. Um, can't, like, this like year no, we just have... Us, uh, us is the kind oh, of yeah. big trailer right now. I was going to say Detective Pikachu, but I think you're right. Detective Pikachu is pretty great, if only for like the, <laughs> the weird Ludicolo moment. That last trailer was pretty great. Yeah, it's good. Um, and then, I don't know, last year, last year was fun because Shape of Water reflects what we started to get in cinema. We started to get the films that were directed when Trump went into office, so, uh, it was a response year where we got The Post, which is like, uh, All the President's Men and Darkest Hour, uh, it's a time to reflect on those things. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we had both Darkest Hour and Dunkirk in the same time frame there. Yeah, that, that was crazy. It it is odd though to kind of look like look at Shape of Water and then look now at Green Book and wonder what happened. Why is this where we're at now? Oscars. You know, we just want to know why. Yeah, it's it's just such an odd jump to me again, especially with the the great representation of films last year. Like we said, really the only films probably not deserving of Best Picture recognition in the Oscars last year was something like Darkest Hour and. Uh, I don't know, was there another, maybe The Post, maybe The Post wasn't a Best Picture, you know, nominee deserving, but everything else. I don't think Lady Bird was especially there, but it was close. I don't, I don't know, Kevin might disagree with you there. Kevin yeah, loves the hell out of Lady Bird and other, like we talked about that, I'm pretty sure Kevin's just a, a 16-year-old girl. And we I mean, 8th grade, I, Lady Bird, Edge of 17, you just give him like an awkward teenage girl story and he's right there. I mean, everyone has their niche, that's his. Uh, yep. You got romantic comedies. I have <laughs> old films that people love. Nobody I guess watches anymore. No, nobody wants to talk about Citizen Kane. I guess. No, what's Citizen Kane? Exactly. Um, then we have uh, on on a better note, we have uh, films like The Favorite from last year, which is I don't know. That would have been the perfect follow up to Shape of Water. You would have said. Okay, I could draw a straight line from Shape of Water to the favorite. I see why it won. Yep, or Roma. Roma, oh, I think, yeah. would have been even more so because you got the the Mexican mm. influence there. Still, it's still it's Quran coming around and you know making that like that makes sense to me. Those two films were really the only ones nominated that I felt like made sense to be nominated. Everything else makes no logical sense. Like if you if you draw another line, like like just think about how Call Me by Your Name connects to Bohemian Rhapsody as Best Picture nominees. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about that. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, if you want to look forward, we got uh, Suspiria from the same director this year, which is better than most of these. And actually, thinking about that, this is even more, uh, like, you go back another year, Moonlight, you know, another yeah. story about, you know, gay relations there, Call Me By Your Name, and then Bohemian Rhapsody. And then, speaking of, where's <laughs> Beale Street in all of this? A film that's much better than Green Book. Yep, and another you know romance movie, another one about race. Yeah. I'm I'm baffled, especially since Barry Jenkins just won back in 2016. Why was he not nominated for Best Picture? And, and it has to be because it came out in the bad time frame of like the end of December, so <laughs> nobody saw it. I mean, I, I I look at my top three anyway, and I'm not I don't feel particularly represented, and I know you're not, so 
I don't yeah. know who's represented by Green Book. I think Middle America is. I think it's right. the least offensive choice. I, I mean, it's offensive, but... I, I was going to say, uh, I think the rest of film Twitter might disagree with you there as far as offensive. <laughs> I mean, film Twitter is film Twitter, though. I just feel like it's the most average, safe choice. I, 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 think, I think our biggest takeaway is that it was better to choose that than Bohemian Rhapsody, if you yeah. had to. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I think... I think it's a better movie than Black Klansman and Bo Rep, so there's that. You think, it's, you think it's better than Black Klansman? That's surprising, actually. Yeah. I, I felt like Black Klansman felt like a Marvel movie for race relations. It was strange. Hmm. I'm, I'm still very interested to see it, because yeah, I have a lot of... It's still good. Yeah, I have investment. You know, I think I'm, I'm interested to see Spike Lee's good stuff. You know, he's not the most consistent filmmaker, but... No. Do the Right Thing, I think, is one of the greatest films ever made. I kind of wish we'd talked about it, since it is 30 years. We kind of missed that for February. That would have been oh, smart to do. Could still do it. It's pretty topical. Um, Black Klansman, I think, is fine. It it really bumped me, though, when it went into Trump stuff. Uh, I know it's meant to make you uncomfortable, but it also made me dislike the movie. I can see that. I think we really got off topic. We're talking about The Shape of Water, right? Yeah, but, but we were talking about, like, Oscars and... You oh, know, yeah, so uh, I guess that's still re- relevant. <laughs> diverse directors, it was just good to see Del Toro getting up there. Just like, uh, by the way, his buddy Carone winning the uh, first director to win cinematography. Did, did he win cinematography? Was yeah. He... Oh, that's where I forgot that he also shot the film, which is very interesting. And there was a note out the other day saying, did he really shoot it himself, or uh, did someone else get uncredited? But it sounded like... Uh, he had to go back and reshoot a lot of it, so mm-hmm. that's his credit. That's cool. He got Oscars for both of that. Then that's interesting. Yeah, did not realize that. But Corona is definitely one of the the better filmmakers working today. Very exciting to see that. Yeah, um, yeah. We we ranked Girl Scout cookies, uh, Mexican directors. I feel like we had a good show. Talked about the Oscars. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we covered all sorts of things here and still managed to talk about Shape of Water, which is a pretty great achievement, even if we were a little sporadic about it. Um, yeah, I think Shape of Water, uh, it's... it's. I think it's just hard to kind of put it more into words to say about it. It's a really, really good film. We talked about the reasons why. Saying any more just seems like repeating ourselves. Right. Um, my fiancé does have take issues with it. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, and maybe one of the only things that makes sense to me of people disliking it is that they don't necessarily buy into the romance, which I can understand. Uh, I think the romance is there on more of a subtextual level, like, you know, they relate because they both can't speak. There's not, like, a nuanced emotional side. Like, it's not like the fish man has an interesting perspective on the world that she gets to see, you know? Yeah, it's it's funny because my fiancé gets so cautious now. She's like, are you just are you just bugging me so you could go on the podcast and talk about this? Um, yes that's exactly what you're doing <laughs> that's exactly what i did at one point she walked into the room and she said this looks like uh alien porn i was like it, oh uh, she went and saw this movie with me so i was surprised that she had a uh, uh, diverse reactions that didn't match up with her original ones i guess if you look at it out of context it does seem less romantic that was yeah. one thing i talked about because i watched it with my fiance my fiance here is that can the fish man really consent to sex like i oh. like I, I kind of related it to her, like, Jenny seducing Forrest and Forrest Gump. Like, he doesn't really <laughs> understand what's going on here. Yeah. And it's kind of abusive and messed up if you think about it. 
Well, That's I mean, like that. You, you can't think too much about the politics of having sex with a fish man here because it starts to fall apart. I feel like he's the one penetrating and making the advance in some way. Um, oh, I feel well, like, it, you know, women are receptive and the fish man is penetrating. Then I think we could say that he's probably making the advance, right? Possibly, but it could be the other way around, too, where he's on the bottom and, you know, she gets up and, you know, hops on his fish man pole. You know, this isn't what I expected when I... when. When you said you wanted to talk about Shape of Water, but I see where I see where you're going now. I mean, it's the only thing people talk about. It's the fish fucking movie. You know, how is. are we not going to talk about the you know the mechanics of fucking a fish man? So what do you just... think this? Uh, what do you think this movie did for man fish relations? Uh, I think you know it strengthened it. It's got a very positive angle towards bestiality. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I, th I think that's what we'll leave it at. Okay. <laughs> the the best film about bestiality you'll ever see. I'm not going to think of others. I'm, we're just going to leave this. <laughs> okay. We'll leave it till next week. We'll find another one to talk about. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye, Calvin. And the Oscar goes to... Olivia Colman. Ah... Uh... <laughs> This is hilarious. <laughs> Gone, Oscar. <laughs> um, and any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Anyway, so please wrap up. Right, okay. <laughs> Lady Gaga. Oh. And Melissa.